Hello, everybody. Welcome to the ninth episode of The Primal Show. Today, we have myself and uh, my co-host, Derek Lytle. Hey, guys. And we, <laughs> and we also have a guest joining us, uh, somebody that both Derek and I know pretty well that's doing amazing things and also follows an animal-based diet, has a few world records. Uh, that would be Zach Bitter. And we'd like to welcome you to the show, buddy. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Before we uh, dive into the episode, me and Derek wanted to go right into the questions that were left for us on the last episode. And so I'll pass it over to Derek and you can start going through those. Cool. Yeah. So the episode today is all about electrolytes, but all the questions that we have that we're going to go over today are about sodium, essentially. So it all ties in, which is really cool. Um, well, the first one is by Caleb Frazier. I think that's how you say their last name. So it's not sure if, if it was listed in this clip. But how many grams of sodium do you recommend supplementing with to start out with upper and lower limits? So the the question is in reference to um, like if you're starting an animal based diet or keto or something like how would you kind of determine how much sodium to to start with? Do you guys have any uh, thoughts on that? I mean, I would say if you can afford it, uh, doing something that, like a sweat test would be beneficial. Have you ever done that, Derek or Zach? I never. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I got it done earlier this year. I was actually kind of surprised. Mine was lower than I thought. I think like population average is like about 950 milligrams per liter of sweat you're going to lose. Um, and then you get extremes. You get people who are like below 200 and then you get people well above 2000. I think I've seen some that are like 2,300 milligrams per liter. Um, I was 614. So I was like a little bit below average. So would you say that's even more below average since you're also animal-based? Perhaps. Well, yeah, it's interesting because I mean, really what you see, I think happening with sodium and kind of like low carb, I'll say low carb because like animal based tends to kind of fall in that category. And really the driver there is going to be like insulin reduction is going to be like a result of a low carbohydrate diet. And insulin is what's going to tell your kidneys to retain sodium. So as that insulin goes down, your body is going to shed excess sodium and water with it. Um, you're also going to maybe have some fluid loss from just like glycogen depletion and things like that. But, uh, some of that might normalize to a degree after over time too. And if you're like me where I'm not like kind of strict, I'm not strict keto. So, or zero carb. So I don't probably have as much of a hit to that as someone who is a strict keto or low carb or a strict keto or carnivore or something like that. So knowing that that's what your sweat rate is, how much, like how much, how many electrolytes do you supplement a day with that information? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, you know, I don't do anything too strategic with like my normal foods because I just eat so many like salty foods in general that I'm I'm getting a decent amount of electrolytes. Like if I like track my stuff on a, like a an app like Chronometer or something like that, like I'm almost always up into like the four thousand plus milligrams. And sometimes like if it's like a big training block and it's warm out, I mean I've had somewhere I've been up closer to like eight thousand milligrams of uh sodium in a day. So, uh, it's not something that like, I'm worried about getting too little of it in my daily diet. What I will do though, sometimes is, uh, when I'm out running, especially if it's a little bit of a longer run or hotter time of year is I will kind of blend that concentration into what I'm drinking. So since mine is like, um, since mine is 614, I'll use a product called element T and it's like each one of their packets is essentially like double that. 
So I can put that in like a two liter bottle and just kind of pour that into my bottles. And then I kind of have that concentration while I'm out there training. Um, or sometimes I'll front load a little bit before a run and use some, uh, have some with like, you know, uh, one of their flavors is chocolate. So you guys going to say like, mix it with coffee, but then people probably think, what are you dunking electrolytes in your coffee for? <laughs> but they've got some that actually mix well with warm beverages. So, um, that's what I'll do sometimes before too, if it's going to be like a long run and I know I'm going to be sweating a lot and I want to kind of try to get ahead. Or if I was like, you know, I'm usually starting a run without eating anything first thing in the morning. So you, know, you get a, you got to kind of get some, you're probably a little bit depleted from just the overnight, uh, fast essentially. So that, so just to clarify then Zach, say, or Mike, say each of you were coaching somebody who's starting keto, for example, what would you give them as a guideline for starting out for sodium intake? And then how would you like progress from there? Yeah. Um, I think like from their just day-to-day life, I think like if they're not make if they're making a major dietary shift, what you want to pay attention to is a lot of times what happens, and I suspect this is some of the issue that keto low carb folks end up having too, on top of the stuff I mentioned before, is that you just clean your diet up. So you're eating a lot less processed food, which oftentimes has a lot of sodium as a preservative. So then you go to like more like whole foods, fresh foods and things that don't actually have a lot of like sodium already in there. And you may just accidentally, uh, like reduce your sodium intake from before. So if your body, your body does a really good job of regulating this, like you're going to have some people that are sensitive to sodium and things like increased blood pressure are going to be signs of that. Um, or just being like constantly thirsty and things like that, that you can kind of pay attention to. Uh, I mean, your body has some pretty good cues. Like if you're getting too low in sodium, you can have things like you start feeling a little nauseous at times. You might even feel like you're going to vomit headaches, irritability, restlessness, just general fatigue, low energy, in like real extreme cases, even like seizures and things like that. Uh, obviously you don't want to wait for that to make any accommodations, but um, those are kind of some things that you can, you can notice. So like yeah, a simple little test you can kind of do is just like sit down and then stand up kind of quickly. And if you feel like you're getting kind of lightheaded, you know, that's a decent sign like that you're either maybe a little dehydrated or you're low in electrolytes or something like that too. So you can, you can kind of sense it out a little bit from just some some easier free kind of take home type stuff. Um, if you want like a more like real inside look, getting a, just a, a, a blood test to see where your electrolyte levels are at, if they're in balance or not, is, isn't a bad idea, but, um, yeah, gen- generally speaking, if you're looking at sodium, that's going to be the driver for the most case, because your body's going to excrete, excrete that at a, usually a much higher level than the other ones. And it can be varied. Whereas like, the other electrolytes like potassium and magnesium are going to be a little more consistent where I think the average person for, um, for potassium is like 150 milligrams per liter. And then magnesium is only like three to four. So as long as you're getting enough of that in your daily diet, you're probably going to be fine on that. Um, most electrolyte supplements, if you're using for training purposes, are going to include those in the ratios that they would lose as well. So, um, you don't really have to worry about it too much for if you're using like an electrolyte supplement out there on your training days. Yeah. And for me, I mean, keep in mind, I've never done a sweat test before, so I'm just going off of what I feel is working for me, but I'm typically supplementing about four grams or 4,000 milligrams of sodium a day through like relight, Redmond relight is what I use. Uh, <clears throat> but that's also not keeping into fact that I put a lot of salt on my food too. 
so in terms of like pure supplementation, I'm just doing about three to four grams a day through supplements and then using salt liberally on my foods. So I guess I'm pretty similar to where Zach's at as well. But again, I haven't done a sweat test personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, one of the signs of too much salt is just going to be like increased blood pressure too. So like, if you notice like your blood pressure is increasing and you're adding a bunch of extra salt in the sodium, that's probably a sign that you've gone a little bit further than, than you need to. Yeah. That's a good point because mine did go up a few months ago and I started to back off from it. <laughs> did it come back down right away or? Uh, it took a few days. But it, it probably took a while just to normalize everything yeah. that was in there. Yeah. What about you, Derek? Are you, are you doing something pretty similar? Yeah. Like I would say four to five grams of salt per day, like um, through Relight. Um, but I remember when I first started doing keto, like years ago, um, like obviously fluctuate off and on now. Like initially I was not getting enough electrolytes at all, nor sodium. And like, I'd go out on runs and like feel okay, but it was like Phoenix summers and like Southern Utah summers. I was really dehydrated and just hot. And there was no way I was getting enough sodium. I was cramping a lot, like during my runs, post runs, like everything would just, it was just always cramps. And really it came down to that was making sure I was getting enough electrolytes in. And so now like, obviously like I liberally salt like food and eggs and meat and whatever, but I'd try to like shoot for four to five grams a day. And that could go up or down too, based off what I'm doing. Um, like, like yesterday I went into the sauna. I was a little bit sick um, the past few days. And so I went into the sauna and like you sweat a ton in the sauna, right? So I make sure I had extra electrolytes after that. Um, but yeah, so generally aim for like, if I'm going to be out on a run, especially too, kind of, kind of like what Zach was saying, like a thousand milligrams or so per liter. Um, and I just use the Relight packets because they have a thousand milligrams in there. Um, or if I'm using some sort of drink mix, I kind of like kind of fluctuate with the values there, but yeah, about a thousand milligrams a liter and then supplement four to five grams a day generally. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. <clears throat> oh, go ahead, Zach. Is, is most, I'm guessing most of the listeners here are like maybe endurance athletes or athletes of some sort. So it's like, um, generally speaking, like, I mean, we're going to have pretty high numbers based to the output and the sweat rates and things like that. So, uh, you know, you have like your, your average recommendation is going to be like just like a little over two grams per day. So, uh, if someone's like his sitting in cool temperatures and not working out much, uh, that's probably a decent starting point. And then if you start seeing like signs that are like indications of like not having enough sodium or electrolytes on board, then you can always adjust from there. But, but yeah, it, I think, you know, sodium has had kind of had an interesting, uh, path in like the nutrition world because it's been sort of demonized in the past and it sort of had a resurgence when we had some newer studies that showed that the body does a pretty good job of regulating it but then there is a percentage of the population that is gonna have uh you know just they're not gonna be very sensitive to salt and then there's gonna be people that aren't sensitive so um like anything i guess you nothing is a is a guarantee (laughs) (laughs) For, the, for those who are interested, Zach, uh, to get a sweat test, do you know, do you just get those at like a clinic where you do a VO2 max test or something like that? Um, Some of them might. I, you know, the there's a company called Precision Hydration that they actually like outsource this. I think they like sell their machines to people. And I mean, it's actually pretty convenient. A lot of the, like I had a, I had a person come to my house and actually just has this little briefcase with this machine in it. They set it up and then they just put this little patch on, on like your forearm and it like draws a little sweat out and then it tests the concentration. So that's how I did it. Um, and I'm 
pretty sure you can probably get that stuff tested, like an exercise lab and things like that as well. If you have like something like that near your house. Cool. Did you say it was precision hydration? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's put that in the show notes, Derek. Yeah, they make drink mixes and stuff as well. Mm-hmm. They got a, they've actually got a calculator on their website too, where if you're not going to, cause I mean, it's not like, it's not free. So like some people are like, I'm not going to spend a couple hundred dollars on this and still want to know. And they've got some calculators and some protocols to try out too, to kind of get an idea. And I mean, some things can kind of point towards yourself too. Cause I mean, you probably see this uh, from time to time where, um, especially in the drier climates where, you know, your sweat evaporates so quickly, where if you're having like really, really like crazy salt stains on your clothing, that's a pretty good indication that you're losing a fair bit of electrolytes versus someone like myself, who's a little lower than average. Um, Cause you, you always have that situation where you run with a group and one person, it doesn't have any salt stains on their clothes. The other person just looks like they're, they could stand their shirt up against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, how did that happen? We both ran the exact same thing and the exact same temperature. Um, so there are a few different little signs that can, they're not going to be like super precise, but they're going to point you in the right direction perhaps. Cause the, I think one of the hard things is sometimes you get some similar symptoms from doing too much or too little. So then it's, it makes it difficult to know, like, you know, if, if you think you're on one end of the spectrum, but you're actually on the other, and then you try to course correct, you could actually exasperate the problem versus solve it. Yeah. I, I learned that the hard way at Coca Donut a couple of years ago. <laughs> did you do too much or I did way too much. <laughs> did, you, did you puke? Yeah. I was puking for about 12 hours and crapping myself <laughs> oh geez yeah you can get digestive issues from too much electrolytes too um yeah especially if it's the concentration is a little steep yeah yeah and, you uh, find your limit one way or the other <laughs> yeah it's not best to find it in a race in my no. opinion <laughs> a couple years ago did you just did oh. you just go straight water for a while after that well this is before i knew much about electrolytes so i didn't know what to mm-hmm. do um so no, I didn't do anything right that day, but now, yeah, I, obviously if you have too much, you need to do some water to flush it out, mm-hmm. but I did not do that. I'll say this. They do have um, some recommendations for the ultra runners out there where they would suggest a good starting point for single day ultra marathons, which would be a little bit outside of what you're doing, Mike, with the 200 mile stuff. But, uh, they say five to 700 milligrams per liter of water consumed is kind of a good target starting point for people. Yeah. That's close to what I usually recommend to people too. Uh, were you going to say something, Derek? I think we yeah, cut you off. Two things. I think the first thing, like kind of like we were saying, is you just got to kind of have to play with it a little bit. Because um, like initially I was taking way too little. And then um, like a couple of years ago at a local 50K, I was trying to element out and I took way, in way too much sodium and I ended up cramping um, at the marathon mark. And then that night I didn't sleep at all. I was up puking, like literally puked the entire night. And it was awful. And I didn't, I, my watch showed that I slept zero minutes. Like it was kind of ridiculous. <laughs> and it was really, I was just taking in way too much sodium. And I knew I needed more, but I went way overboard. And then, so once I cut it back and found that like happy medium there, like things have been a lot better since. So it's like, you don't want to have too little, you don't want to have too much, but I think everybody's so different. You got to kind of play with it. And like those, um, like those calculators or whatever can be very beneficial but in the end, though, it's like your body's so different and there's so many variables, like, like Zach was saying, like the heat or the humidity or the intensity or whatever you're doing. So you just gotta, kind of have to play with it, I guess, in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, then you also have to figure out like how much you need to be drinking too, which is going to be independent to the environment you're in or dependent on the environment quite a bit as well. So yeah. um, 
And then there's just thresholds that your body isn't going to absorb too. I think one thing where, you know, I was thinking about this, this is a while ago where I was like, well, if I'm sweating, if I'm losing X number of pounds during this race or during this amount of time running in this heat, I need to be replacing somewhere in that neighborhood. But then you look into the research and it's like from a processing standpoint, we're looking at like someone who's pretty efficient, like 34 ounces per hour is going to be kind of pretty close to that ceiling. So putting in 64, just because you feel like you lost that much, isn't necessarily going to do any of your favors because your body's just going to not be able to process it quick enough. Um, and I'm sure there's, you know, crazy people that can process higher amounts too. So, uh, uh, with that, but uh, this, this again, starting points is usually what most people are going to have with these type of things. Yeah. Going back to that <clears throat> salty shirt comment that you made a couple minutes ago. <laughs> I, d- I didn't know that that wasn't the norm. Like I'm a salty <laughs> shirt kind of guy. And I just found out a few weeks ago that, yeah, not everybody has that, which kind of blew my mind. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm one of the guys where after I'm done running in a hot race, like you could stand my shirt up because of all the so- sodium that I'm dumping. It'd be interesting to see where you're at then you're, I bet you're like well above average. Maybe you're like a 1500 or 2000 milligram type of person. Yeah. I'm going to look into the precision hydration after this. Cause I'm really curious now. Um, Derek, let's, uh, what, what other questions do we have? So the next yeah, one kind of, yeah, the next one kind of relates to what Zach kind of mentioned already, but the question specifically says, um, so quote, the muscle glycogen holds on to extra water, dot, dot, dot. Is the high sodium supplementation still necessary after someone is adapted and is back to normal glycogen stores through gluconeogenesis or low carb intake? And what would be the reasoning slash mechanism behind it? That's a good question. So let me just confirm. They are asking if once you kind of adapt to a low carbohydrate diet, is there a need to balance out with, um, sodium versus the loss of carbohydrate. Um, so I think there's probably a couple things to think about. One is like carbohydrate water retention is going to be a little bit different. So it's not necessarily a clear one-to-one, uh, translation. And then there's also like, once you do get adapted, it doesn't necessarily mean your glycogen stores are going to be like peaked out the way they would have been if you're on a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. Um, most of the research that looks at ketogenic diets, you're going to see like a reduction in muscle glycogen, you know, even after the adaptation phase. And that's just, you know, it's, it's a trade-off, but it's a trade-off in the sense that you're also have much higher ratios of fat to carbohydrate metabolism. So like your body's just not retaining that, that, or storing that, um, muscle glycogen the way it would when you're kind of using that as your foundational fuel source. So, um, it just depends on maybe how much carbohydrate you bring back. If you go back to, if you have like, you know, people do different protocols with this. So like, let's say someone did a situation where they were going pretty low carb and then they did a day or two where they kind of almost went back moderate carb or high carb. There might be some situations there where they have like a complete resynthesis of, of muscle glycogen. Um, but yeah, it's a interesting question. I don't know that it'd be quite as direct with that. I think it's probably the bigger mover is probably going to be like your sweat loss or your sodium loss. Uh, I think that would probably override, uh, you know, the, the other number anyway, especially if you're a high loss person. And I'd venture too that like the statement you made earlier about <clears throat> cutting out all the processed foods that have typically high amounts of sodium, I like that's still going to play into effect, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cause I mean, if you just have someone who's just eating a lot of processed food, they're easily probably over two, 2000 milligrams of sodium a day. Uh, I mean, you can eat processed meals that are well over that. So, um, you know, you take that out and replace it with like non-starchy vegetables and, you know, some meat source and some fat source that doesn't have like an onboard, like electrolyte or sodium on it. Then yeah, unless you're like really piling on the salt, then you, you're going to drop that by a pretty good margin. Just real quick. I just Googled, um, like sodium and Taco Bell in one crunchy taco. Like, I guess it's like a standard taco at Taco Bell. It has 310 milligrams of sodium. In one? Yeah. So if you were to eat like three of those, for example, with a meal and then have whatever sides that go with it, you're well over a thousand milligrams at that point. (laughs) I wonder. And then if you put any sauce on there, that's probably loaded with sodium too. (laughs) Yeah. Or if you you got like some like crunch wrap Supreme or something, there's probably even more in that because it's, there's so many more ingredients. Yeah. I wonder what the sodium content is in like a value meal at McDonald's, like a Big Mac value meal. Cause the fries have to be just loaded with that. I'm looking that up right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny because I like, we both see, oh. or I'll, are you looking Sorry, I just Googled. <laughs> <laughs> what did you see Zach? It, it says uh, 1,325 milligrams for uh is that a Big Mac value meal? I yeah, I think so. The, that's just a Big Mac, right? Oh, maybe it is. Oh, it says uh, Big Mac meal medium. So medium. Oh, so that's not even super size. It's not even large. No one gets medium. Yeah. Yeah. yeah what's the, can small. I change this to super size? Oh man, the ingredient list is like making me sick. <laughs> that's disgusting. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I wonder what the super size is. It's probably your over your daily value. So there you have it. It's like I mean. I mean, pretty double, rare that someone's right. Yeah. So yeah, probably. So yeah. Even, so yeah, you take that out and replace it with like just some ground beef that you made at home and, you know, some non-starchy vegetables or whatever you happen to eat with it. You're probably going to reduce that by quite a big number. Yeah. And I, I want to point out how ironic that is because salt has been demonized and, but yet the government is pushing for like diets that are high in processed foods so it's kind of like taboo, <laughs> taboo in my opinion. <laughs> um yeah it, don't eat sodium unless it's in processed foods basically is what they're saying <laughs> yeah. yeah or don't eat sodium so you can eat the processed foods maybe is what they're getting at <laughs> yeah yeah don't salt your food at home so you can eat taco bell every night yeah <laughs> Well, Zach, thank you for answering that because I didn't know the answer to that. I, that's probably why we brought you into the show, to be honest. <laughs> but no, yeah, that's a, that was an interesting question and I, it got my brain thinking a little bit, but I, I would say I agree with you in, in most of what you just said about that. Um, I don't really have anything to add to that to you, Derek. No, I don't either. Okay, cool. Was that it for the questions? Yeah, so we had one more. Um, it's from Ivan. He says, how does salt affect intermittent fasting? I know that's kind of like a semi-vague open-ended question, um, but yeah, like how, how does salt affect intermittent fasting? Like what are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you're just going to have like a window of time where you're, well, you're not eating anything, right? So whatever electrolytes or sodium you'd have coming in through your daily meal is going to zero. Um, so having like some sort of like electrolyte or salt concoction is probably going to be helpful and kind of keeping blood plasma levels where you're at and staying hydrated versus, I mean, essentially it could be similar to 
Um, I mean, worst case scenario would be like hyponatremia, right? Like you're drinking plain water and then you're losing those electrolytes without replacing them because you don't have the food to go with it. That is going to be the vehicle for the salt. Um, so I would think that would be the role there would be just to kind of keep, keep yourself from getting those symptoms I listed earlier and then feeling like it's because of the intermittent fasting or the prolonged fasting that's causing it. Uh, I mean, you might get those probably not those exact symptoms, but you might get like some tiredness or lethargy, especially if you're not used to it. Um, or if like your weight drops too far or something like that. But, um, I think hydration is probably like the main focus when you're doing those sort of things, since you can, that's the one thing you can have. And I mean, getting headaches is probably one of the biggest symptoms, right. Of people who are fasting and don't supplement enough salt or sodium into, to that Mm -hmm. window while they're fasting. Um, yeah. And I think that's maybe like a big driver of like the keto flu that people talk about sometimes too, where they have that phase in the beginning where they're kind of adjusting to it and feeling nauseous. And some of that could just be like those, because it matches up with a lot of those symptoms that I read off before um, that, 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 yeah. That, and you blame it on the approach versus just the improper application of it. Yeah. Redmond Relight, they have, um, they have an electrolyte mix that's unflavored. It's basically just the raw electrolyte mix. Does LMNT do that too? Yeah, they have a plain one, I think. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, Mike, because you, when you did that zero calorie 100 miler, you had to like make your own stuff too, because most of the stuff has like a trace amount of calories in it, right? Yeah, but that was before I found out about Relight. Um, oh, so their their unflavored one is just zero calories, so you would... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically the the... That's actually how I got in contact with Redmond. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> uh, the, they're a Utah-based company. Yeah. Uh-huh. And there's probably three or four articles on my zero-calorie attempt. And I, all of them listed out how I bought bulk potassium, bulk magnesium, and bulk Redmond real salt. Mm-hmm. And then they they actually reached out to me and was just like, hey, we actually make basically the exact same thing that you made. And then they sent me a bunch. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just the sodium. It's got calcium, chloride, potassium, magnesium, and no flavors to it. So it's just, it's nasty. Like you could taste the potassium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the the if you're using their stuff too, I would imagine there's probably some other trace minerals in there that you're gonna get that are gonna be, um, potentially beneficial. Uh, and maybe if you're fasting too, like, cause you're not getting those, and a lot of those trace minerals you maybe would get in some of your food sources and they're going to be negligible enough in something like uh sea salt or something like that. But if you're fasting or doing a, find yourself running a hundred miles without any energy intake, like you, Mike, then <laughs> maybe they have some option. application. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's something cool too about the unflavored relight is that doesn't have stevia or anything in it. So like all the flavored ones have stevia. And so that one doesn't have any sort of sweetener in it either. So there's like zero chance it's going to um, spike your blood sugar. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, cool. Did that answer? I, I already forgot what the question was, but. Oh, hopefully so the question it. was how does salt affect intermittent fasting? And I think oh, that's right. I think you need salt when you're fasting and intermittent fasting because you do lose electrolytes and you're probably gonna be peeing and sweating still. So it's like, it's not going to like, be a negative by any means. If anything, it's a positive when you're fasting. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. They may have been asking if it was like something that you can't have when you're intermittent fasting, which I think, I mean, I think there's some people out there, what do they call like dry fasting where you don't have yeah. anything like that. I just think that's yeah. kind of, I don't know what the purpose of that would be necessarily other than to like, I guess maybe it would train your body to be more efficient with that stuff over time. 
Um, I mean, there's probably a lot we just don't know about fasting too that hasn't gotten researched yet. But um, if I were to do it, I would definitely be having some electrolytes and, and water. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the unflavored one, there's zero calories in it. So like, it's not going to break a fast. So yeah, mm-hmm. like Zach just said, if you're doing like a dry fast, then, you know, maybe sprinkle some salt on your tongue. I don't know. But then you might have the reverse effect of hypernitremia, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, you probably have to do a lot of sodium to have that though, but yeah, it's unflavored. There's no calories to it. Like it's going to help you not have headaches. It's going to help you not have the fatigue and nausea potentially that Zach talked about. So yeah, if it doesn't break a fast, I don't see any negatives to, to having it with your, some water. Yeah. I say if anything, it's a net positive because if you're drinking water with electrolytes, you're probably going to feel more full yeah. and then you're probably just going to be able to fast longer or just get through your, um, whatever your feeding window is at the time. Well, yeah. And if you're not having headaches or nausea, it's going to reduce your irritability too. So you'll be able to actually last the whole time instead of cutting it out early. <laughs> I know mm-hmm. I've cut a few fasts early because I wasn't well hydrated. <laughs> Same. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. So, oh, go yeah. ahead. Should we just jump into the electrolyte episode then? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Um, take us away, Garrett. Or take us away, Derek. Can you call me Garrett? <laughs> I did. Sorry. <laughs> Cool. I guess um, let's just start with the basics then. So I'll just kind of throw this out there for all of us, but um, let's just start very, very foundational um, topic here. Like, Why do we need electrolytes? Like, What are the benefits of taking in electrolytes and why do we need them as a human? Yeah, I think the better question would be what would happen if we don't have them, right? Great question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Zach, let's talk to you about this. So throughout your, how long have you been into light health and nutrition? Um, to some degree since, uh, since college, when I started kind of taking running a little more seriously and it was kind of the next logical step was to pay attention to what I was eating. And then, uh, it wasn't until after college to when I got into it in a little bit of a deeper manner, I guess, and found, found low carbohydrate type strategies to try out. And would you say there was a certain point where you started to understand and implement electrolytes more into your day-to-day? Yeah, I want to say, you know, I didn't really think about it much when I was running kind of more shorter endurance events, like 5k to 10k type stuff. Um, When I started running longer after college is when I started, you know, just kind of following suit more or less where like you just, you know, a lot of runners, I think do this, especially with ultra running where you like get in the sport and you're like, well, what do I do here? And then you talk to someone and they say, oh, well, you need to be eating this and you need to be drinking that. And then here's these salt tabs, take this too, because you need to have your, you know, your sodium intake or your electrolyte intake going. So I think that was probably my introduction to um, actually taking in electrolytes during an event. Um, yeah. Cause like race day in college was like, you know, maximum in the low 30 minute range versus what we're doing today, running for hours <laughs> on end <laughs> and sometimes extreme weather and things like that. And would you say, so I know like with your story of going low carb, you talk a lot about how you used to like have sleep issues. And then once you went low carb, you noticed pretty quickly that those sleep issues were were resolved. I'm wondering if you can remember anything being resolved once you started taking in more electrolytes appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I ever had like really bad electrolyte imbalances or anything like that. I haven't had them ever show up on like a test or anything like that, like a blood test, but it's not like I was getting those done like on a regular basis during like different phases of training back then either. So 
Um, it's, it's possible. Uh, I mean, when you just look at just like kind of the role of electrolytes and things like that, I mean, like your sodium is going to be something that's going to help with like your body's fluid balance and stuff like that. So if you're getting low in sodium, your body is going to have a harder time keeping that balance and it will course correct as much as it can. Cause it has to keep a pretty tight, um, like blood plasma level. So you have things like uh, swelling. I mean, you'll see this sometimes in endurance events where like people, their fingers will start to swell or their feet will start to swell and things like that. Um, sometimes if it gets really bad, like your abdomen will start to swell and stuff like that. Uh, so that could be from a fluid imbalance. And then you have other electrolytes like potassium, which is going to help with things like muscle concentrations and like nerve transmissions. Um, that's why potassium is sometimes recommended for things like cramping. Uh, the potassium is also going to be one of the, one of the, the electrolytes that's going to help with like blood or help from blood from, from clotting and carrying nutrients to cells, uh, all sorts of stuff. So like, you know, your electrolytes generally when they, they dip too low, you know, that's when hyponatremia can occur, especially if you're like drinking or continuing to drink plain water. Uh, and then it goes, gets into those symptoms that I talked about before, where you have things like nausea and vomiting, headaches and irritability, restlessness and fatigue, low energy and stuff like that. So, um, those are the signs I think to look out for, for sure. Yeah. And going to the extreme end, and I think this is the very extreme end, but, uh, you know, going back to my question on why, what would happen if we don't have electrolytes going back to Coca-Dona for me in 2021, you know, I essentially, I was way off on my electrolytes, my water, and I went into pre-kidney failure or mm. the, you know, the term is rhabdomyolysis. Do you know, Zach, if rhabdomyolysis is more of a hyper or hyponatremia situation or can it be from both? That's a good question. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, it's going to be sort of driven by dehydration. So I guess you could it's probably a more likely to be a loss. I would think, I don't know for sure though. Yeah. I, the reason I asked that because like, you know, again, this is when I didn't fully understand, like, you know, the balance of water to electrolytes, but like, you know, my issue at Coca-Dona was I ran out of water. It was like mm -hmm. this hot 32 mile section. Uh, I, I ran out of water. And so in desperation, I started just taking shots of relight with nothing oh. else. <laughs> <laughs> and so like replaying that in my head, I'm just like, is that what went to the rhabdo or was it the lack of water or both? Like, you know, I'll, I'll never know the answer for sure, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, this is just wild speculation, but it's possible that like that excess electrolyte was pulling fluid away from like your muscles and, or from like pulling fluid, like away from other areas that was requiring it. And that was creating a, a state of dehydration or exasperating a state of dehydration. Yeah. To some degree. Yeah, that's what I guess too, but you know more about this than I do. <laughs> yeah, well, when you think about it, like if you have too much sodium, your body's response is essentially to just retain more water for a while until it can kind of ex extract that. So if it's it's sort of like kind of like dehydrating yourself backwards to some degree, because like you have that 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 imbalance um, just on the other end. Yeah, that makes sense. So don't do that in the future, guys. <laughs> <laughs> that was the year at Coca-Dona where they just like was that they didn't they couldn't get an aid station set up like in that in that one area. So you guys ended up having to go like quite a ways through the heat of the day. And like a yeah. ton of people were struggling that time, I think, weren't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it's it was in the 
the Bradshaws? Is yeah, that something right there? Bradshaw Mountains, yeah. On the way up to Crown okay. King. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was like mile 11 to mile 37. <clears throat> there was no aid station. Uh, or I could be a little bit off, but it was basically like 25 miles or so. And yeah, like they required us to carry four liters. Uh, I know some people that carried six liters of water and they still ran out and they were still in desperation. Um, Yeah, it was a, it was a cluster dude. Like, you know, (laughs) there's not a lot of foliage in this area. Yeah. So like, (laughs) I I remember like seeing a cacti or cactus, whatever. And it was casting a little bit of shade onto the trail. So I like snugged up under this cactus <laughs> to cover my face. And I heard other racers did the same thing and they would wake up and they'd see a line of two or three people waiting to take a turn to get under that small oh. amount of shade. Oh it was a, it looked like a war zone. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, that part of the Cocodona course is gnarly because it's like Southwest facing and there isn't a lot of vegetation. So you, and you're at low elevation as well in May. So you just get yeah. like hammered by the sun and it gets really, really hot there. Yeah. yeah I remember wondering about that that year because they started everyone at like five in the morning, if I remember right. And yeah. I remember thinking like, if you're doing a 250 mile race and no one, I mean, you're, you're just going to go without sleep for a few nights, no matter how fast you are. So then why not start like in the afternoon so at least people can get one good night's sleep before they start i can't imagine people are sleeping more than like four or five hours the night before a race when you got to start at five in the morning yeah i mean that's why i like candace's races because she hers start at nine o'clock so you do get a little bit of time to sleep in <laughs> did they switch that though i think cocodona starts in the afternoon now last year uh, last... Later, like at 11 did or something it? right so there yeah they... and that was the first year of that event too i think right so there's there's always going to be some stuff to kind of iron out the first time around oh well they did it last (laughs) (laughs) they did it last year because that fire happened and they had to like reroute the course two or three days before Mm -hmm. and so i I think the big issue is most of us like got our airbnbs and hotel like in phoenix because that was only 30 or 40 minutes from the start Mm -hmm. but then they had to move the start to prescott which made it like another hour or something oh so i think they were just mostly doing it for those of us that had the Airbnb's yeah anyway that's a big side tangent i'm sorry derek let's <laughs> <laughs> uh let's just carry on then um just thinking about like electrolytes and salt like the history of behind salt is fascinating to me like like both like from like an athletic standpoint and just in general like in human history it's like humans have always gone after salt it was like gold in the past because it was used as a preservative to preserve food back when we didn't have refrigerators and things and it's like even the Romans, I think, used salt as a currency, which shows like how valuable it was back in the day and even now. So, yeah, I didn't know all that. So <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's funny to think about things that like you sort of just have on demand now that would have been just like could take you an entire day to acquire like waters like that, too. Right. Where like you see like these like uh, more you, like these tribal areas where like half their population has to spend the entire day gathering water. Whereas if you can get them one well, all of a sudden they just increase their manpower by double <laughs> and then you start developing. You go figure, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it's wild too. And like with animals as well, like they'll go way out of their way to go find salt licks and just because mm-hmm. they need that salt. And like, which is why like we get horses and stuff nowadays, salt and cows and whatever, but like anything that's wild will go really far out of the way to lick salt. And like, I've even heard of like a quote unquote, like, I don't know, not terrorism necessarily, but like, um, 
like sabotage type things well people will bury salt under runways and deer will come and like eat it so they'll dig up the salt patches from the runway and then it allow or makes it so planes can't like take off or use the the airport so oh jeez yeah huh. it just shows like how crazy like or how important salt is in the diet where like animals will go so far and do so much damage to get at salt and it's like a necessity for all animals obviously and like we as humans like obviously like, we're lucky enough to be able to just go to the grocery store and get it but like imagine if we didn't have salt like that like we'd have to go to the salt lake and get it or just like find yeah. sources of it around all over i wonder how much because like you know obviously as as time has progressed like our food has like the quality of our food has digressed <laughs> um and like a lot of I, a common theme that i feel with sodium is once you like especially when you go low carb for example it gets to a point where sodium starts to taste sweet at least that's been my experience. I don't know if that's the experience of both of you. Am, am I an anomaly here? <laughs> no, like as as I cut out sugar more and more, like if I try like Redmond salt, like just like their plain, not their relight, but just the plain salt, it does have a kind of a hint of sweetness to it. It's not like you're eating a candy bar by any means, but it's right. definitely like a little bit sweet there. And it, it's good. Like I could honestly just like, like stick my finger in salt and eat it now. Like it's delicious. Like I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to do like 10,000 milligrams of salt a day or something, but like, <laughs> it's, it's super good though. Like if you're just like, Oh, like, like it's almost like enticing as a treat. Yeah. I wonder how much like the progression, the progression of like our food and how it's like deteriorated in value and quality. I wonder how much of that plays an effect to like salt consumption, because obviously like the way we are today, uh, people don't or they, they try to avoid salt is what I'm seeing. And I know that, that like a lot of that has to do with like health issues. Like we're, we're told that salt's bad for our health or too much salt is bad for our health. But I also wonder how much of our taste buds like have just been desensitized over the years, ever since salt was first discovered. And if that's why people are slow, if that's a factor as to why people are slowly moving away from, from salt. Well, I think people are, and, and Zach, I'm interested in your take on this as well, but like, I think people least in our generation generations before us i've kind of looked at salt as a bad thing simply because it was semi-correlated with like heart disease and high blood pressure and stuff and like the rdas now are only like 2300 milligrams of salt and so people just assume that like eating salt is bad and the government had all these pushes to like stop eating salt like low salt everything low sodium everything and so now everybody in the back of their mind is just thinking that salt is bad when like we know it's it's necessary for human life and it's necessary for like proper hydration and just basic bodily functions but like the government for whatever reason has had this giant war on salt and we've seen all the, the issues from it yeah yeah i think it's like it's probably one of those things where like you you just look at like when you're talking about like a government recommendation they're looking at like what are the big movers and they look at like well what's killing the most people and it's like heart disease and cancer and things like that so then they're like well what are we what can we do to reduce heart disease and things like that and like well we can lower blood pressure and there's a ton of different ways to lower blood pressure um so like what's the easiest one for them to do and it's like sodium or a one to do and then for whatever reason like you know like then it, it, it kind of gets out of control to some degree where it's like uh where it's like this isn't necessarily the only lever you should be pulling or even the lever you should be pulling specifically um but it is a thing or a mechanism, so to speak. So then it gets like, for whatever reason, it's the one that gets the attention. And then when it gets the attention, then everyone kind of just associates that with it versus any of the other things that could potentially be be causing that to also be the case. 
You know, what's interesting too about like RDA values is that they're just like simply values to survive, not necessarily thrive. So that's like a very low level of things you need to be taking in. Like their protein intakes are, in my opinion, not very adequate. Same thing Mm -hmm. with like fat and everything. And it's like, yeah, you can survive by like meeting those, like the DV of that, but like, it's not necessarily ideal for health. Yeah. Yeah. And then lifestyle plays a huge role too, like, which which is probably clear when we were talking before, just about just like the amount of sweating that you're going to do if you're out there running around in the heat for a couple hours at that time and things like that. So I'm just not really, I don't really like any sort of like government recommendation when it comes to like food intake and things like that, because I just find like, like, even if they did find like like a particular nutritional protocol that would on average work best for the vast for the majority of people like application of actually getting done is the next step and it just never seems to be the case so it's like because like you'll see like the defense for things like you know the you know the 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 the, the dietary recommendations is well it does work but nobody does it well, if nobody's going to do it, then why are we even recommending it? Like it's it, clearly it's like, we're, we're not going about it the right way. <laughs> if our goal is health and we think we have this ideal way for most people, but no one's actually going to adhere to it. Um, at that point, I think it's, you got to just go back to the drawing board and find a different way to try to get people to find whatever way of eating or uh, approach that's going to work best for their lifestyle versus trying to find these like one size fit all approaches and um, kind of put them and not put them in, on everybody's uh protocol regarding blood pressure zach uh do you know if receipt like getting higher blood pressure as a result of having too much sodium is that necessarily a bad thing if that because like obviously if you have high blood pressure from like a poor diet like that's one thing but if it's just from supplementing sodium do you know if that's something that people should be concerned about or if you've read anywhere that that's something? Oh, yeah, I think, I mean, if you can pinpoint sodium being the driver, then I would think you'd want to probably reduce it just because the, I mean, the, what's going to be accurate is where you want those numbers to lie. So whether you can get them in range with a ton of sodium or not is kind of the next question. So like, if you're like doing everything the same and you add a bunch of salt and then now your blood pressure goes out of range, that's probably a problematic. Um, but if you had someone who says got low blood pressure and they start eating more salt and then therefore also drinking more fluids and things like that, and their blood pressure comes into the right range, then, you know, that's a, that's a positive thing. So it's also, it's sort of a moving target. That's going to be individual. That makes sense. I was just wondering because there's a cardiovascular research scientist that both Derek and I follow. Do you follow um, Dr. Chris Denich, Zach? I don't think so. Derek's Does he have a take? Is I... <laughs> an alternative view of this, or? Well, he 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 does like probably five posts a day. He mm-hmm. just does like those like basic posts where it's like a quote. Okay. I don't know if you've seen, but I would say like at least once a week, he's talking about like sodium and supplementing sodium and that you should supplement sodium. And like, the reason I asked the question about the blood pressure is my blood pressure started to go up after I started or sodium, but I was doing that based off of what I was reading from this cardiovascular research scientist. And so okay, gotcha. mm-hmm. that's why I'm wondering, like, obviously like, you know, doctors, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is going to sound backwards, but obviously like doctors, you shouldn't take everything they say to heart, 
you know, obviously there's a lot of doctors that I don't agree with, especially when it comes to nutrition. And so, you know, where he was recommending a certain amount of sodium for me and it had a backwards effect for me, like I should, you know, really take that into consideration. But I was also just wondering if since my blood pressure went up from the sodium, if that's something that I necessarily need to worry about or not, but you know, you answered that. Yeah. That makes sense. I, well, I mean, here's the thing I think that, cause there's a lot, bunch of other things that can raise blood pressure. So this goes back to, I think what you were saying before Derek was like salt sort of took the arrows for that because it can increase your blood pressure, but so can eating too much food, eating too much processed food, eating too much sugar and things like that. So like you can have a situation where someone is eating an adequate amount of salt or a, an amount of salt that would not be problematic if they cleaned up these other areas but unless they clean up those other areas, it's like, well, which one of these levers are you going to pull to lower your blood pressure for you? You Mike, you're probably not like that example though, because you've already kind of taken that step away from a lot of the processed foods and a drastic reduction in sugar, if not complete elimination in most cases. So like for you, like you've kind of already pulled all the levers outside of, you know, what else is going to drive your blood pressure to increase, um, so then like if you add more salt and see that move, I would think that would actually be a more accurate depiction of what the sodium is actually doing to you at an individual level versus the person who's just kind of like leaving a, leading a really unhealthy lifestyle with like a lot of alcohol consumption, high processed food, sugars, and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think for like most of the studies I've seen, it's very coral, correlative, correlative. I don't know how you'd even say that. It correlates highly with like high blood pressure. That could also be because like, okay, you're eating McDonald's every day. You're, yeah. eating, yeah, right, you're having yeah. like Monster and Red Bull every day as well. So like mm-hmm. that could be the real reason why, but it's like salt's easy to demonize versus, right. or it's easier to give up salt probably than your like rock star addi- um, addiction or your McDonald's addiction or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's just it too, Derek. Like when it goes back to what we were saying before, whereas a lot of these processed foods are loaded up with sodium. So it's like, is it the the food or the sodium that's doing it? Or is it the fact that like, a combination of both of them are kind of, you're getting hit from two angles and that's, what's really putting out a range. Whereas if you fixed one or the other, you'd be more likely to kind of see that normalize. Yeah. It's kind of like when people demonize meat, but then they look at people eating meat that are also just eating Burger King yeah. with fries and <laughs> onion rings and a Coke. It's like, well, maybe it's not the meat that's, that's the issue. Maybe it's the seed oils and all the garbage that's in that uh, fast food you're eating. Is there any, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say this actually makes me think about just like there's like a there's like all the different like risk factors that come into like where your risk actually lies with these different issues like heart disease and things like that. And it seems like we always want to find one that could potentially or somewhat clearly correlates with that, but it it's when when it like at a, at a certain point, you got to get around to eating something, right? So like none of these things necessarily have like a zero consequence uh, situation. They can all have negative and positive things about them. So, um, but yeah, at the end of the day, you got to start eating something. So then it's like, well, which, which areas of your life can you control better for a risk reduction? And is something like, you know, taking red meat out of your diet going to be a, a benefit for you if you're doing everything else healthy. So that's kind of like what you were saying, Derek. It's like, is it the, the fact that you're eating the McDonald's value meal, that's the problem or is it the fact that that value meal has a quarter pound of beef on it or whatever it happens to be so these high sodium like these processed foods that have high sodium contents i'm guessing that they're just using table salt 
Is that does that sound accurate to both of you? Oh yeah, there's no way they're using a the high quality sea salt like at Taco Bell or something. Right. It's like right. they're using like the cheapest yeah. salt they can find, <laughs> like bleached, whatever, nothing in it. It's just straight up like sodium. And I'm guessing that 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 low quality sodium would have a higher impact on the deterioration of your health versus something like a a real salt or a sea salt, a pink Himalayan sea salt. Oh, what was I, that? I'm sorry, I missed it. So basically what I'm saying is, is like, you know, we're talking about like the, the potential negative effects of sodium and like the way it's been demonized. I'm mm-hmm. guessing that like basic table salt that's found in processed foods would have a, like a, a larger impact on your health deterioration versus Redmond real salt or pink Himalayan sea salt or something like that. Or is that he, not? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I it probably depend on what all is in it and like what each it could be something where for some things yes but other things no would be my guess okay i I don't know i look at it like well zach you're probably right and it probably is kind of splitting hairs a little bit but like i think the benefits of a high quality sea salt definitely outweigh obviously like a refined white table salt but i kind of look at it as like with cane sugar for example when it's broken down like from the plant like you ever seen like a cane sugar stock before oh yeah giant like looks like bamboo kind of a bigger and like if you're going to eat it out of there yeah it's definitely it's still straight up sugar but like you actually have to work for it a little bit so you're not consuming as much but like when it's just like refined cane sugar you could just you could eat a whole like pound of that like in a in a minute like through soda or something yeah maybe that's an exaggeration whatever being a little hyperbolic here but like that's definitely gonna be worse for you than having to like gnaw some cane stock or something to get that sugar so yeah and like the satiety the satiety index of just like pure sugar is mm-hmm. going to be like very little versus whatever you got to eat with it. If you're trying to get it out of us, even, yeah, I mean, even like a piece of fruit, you're going to feel quite a bit more full from that than you would the equivalent of the sh- just plain table sugar, like mixed in a glass of water, well, essentially soda. <laughs> yeah. Or like eat two oranges or like a gallon of orange juice. Like what's easier yeah, yeah. to do? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Mike, you have anything to say about that? Or you just... <laughs> No, I was just wondering what your guys' thoughts on that, because I mean, to be honest, like the reason I'm asking a lot of questions is like, you know, I, when it comes to electrolytes and sodium, I just know like, you know, we need it in terms of like a hydration standpoint. Uh, There's not like, (laughs) I I was planning on just taking a backseat to most of this episode because I feel like this is a lot of like out of my area of expertise, but that was definitely something that I've been thinking about this past week ever since we started talking about doing this episode on electrolytes. You know, I was wondering the main downsides between, you know, a basic table salt versus something like a mineral salt. Obviously, you're getting more from a mineral salt, but I was just wondering if like the table salt would deteriorate you a little bit more from a health standpoint. So, yeah, I was just listening. <laughs> yeah, okay, that was a good question. Um, I don't know. I'd be curious if there are any studies about that because I've never seen any, but I'd be really curious to read some about that. Yeah, for sure. Um. So um, let's kind of move on then. Um, last week, we mentioned briefly um, the book, The Salt Fix. I don't know, Zach, have you ever read that before? Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, the author, James, I'm going to massacre his last name. It's Italian. The Nicoletoni or Tony? Yeah. <laughs> the Nicoletoni. So, I don't know. Oh, that's the doctor I was referencing earlier, Zach. I oh, just okay. Say, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just say the niche. I don't try to say the full last name. <laughs> Come on, did you learn Italian? Yeah. <laughs> um so in his book i'm i'm really curious your thoughts on this zach um 
He talks about a salt solution as a pre-workout where essentially, um, actually, let me double check the values on it. I sent it to to Mike recently. So essentially it's taking like a, a high salt water to pre-hydrate before a workout, whether it's like going to the gym or going to do like an interval session or something. And this is exactly what his post says. It says pre-hydrating with salt and water is the best performance enhancer. So he says the protocol is to consume 2,300 to 4,300 milligrams of sodium in 20 to 33.8 ounces of fluid respectively and do that um, 90 minutes before exercising and drink that 30 minute over 30 minutes and so his whole reasoning behind that is that it increases blood volume and then you're also like kind of hyper hydrating before you go out to do Mm -hmm. a workout so what are your thoughts on consuming that much sodium prior to say a workout session or a long run or something yeah, it's a good question. I think it would probably go back to like what we talked about in the beginning with just your personal sodium uh, or electrolyte loss. So like if you happen to be someone who's like in the high end of it, then yeah, preloading and things like this. And I think actually like when I, so when I got my sweat test done, I went through that precision nutrition's like their little like online calculator thing first, just to kind of see what it, where it landed me at and what kind of recommendations it went. And then I went back and I plugged in just a bunch of just like random things to try to get an idea of like, well, what if it, what would it tell me differently if I was say someone on the high end versus the low end. And they do recommend like a preloading situation for people who are kind of in the higher end. And for just some basic numbers too, like if you look at the average is like 950 milligrams of electrolytes uh, per liter of salt or of sweat loss or water loss. Um, that's average. But when you start kind of looking at the rest on either side of that, 20% is at 1500 milligrams. So one out of five people are going to have a fairly high level of electrolyte loss in their, in their, in their, their sweat versus the average. So like someone like that, yeah, they'd probably want to preload. Um, and then like duration is going to do it, like what you're actually doing during it. I think like if you're sipping on like a a concentration of electrolytes during that workout you probably don't need to do as much before or any before depending um but yeah the the problem with those type of recommendations is like and i get it like you're writing a book you can't really like necessarily individualize anything but um you know you it's probably problematic for someone who's only losing 200 milligrams if they're on that extreme low end of the situation they probably shouldn't be doing that uh, it's because they're likely going to meet their needs probably just in their daily diet for the most part. And even if you are on the higher end, you probably have to train your gut a little bit for something like that, right? Yeah, like you it, might. Yeah. Like, what did you say he re- recommended to start out with? How many milligrams? It's so it's based off. Oh, crap. I just lost it. One second. It was like 2300 to 4300 or something like that. Yeah. So it's. 2300 to 4300 of sodium milligrams of sodium in 20 to 33.8 ounces of water yeah i'd be interested to see where he got those numbers from because i mean that's an incredible amount of electrolytes 2300 milligrams um yeah because that would be the equivalent like i would have to lose four liters of fluid in order to extract that much electrolyte based on mine so now if you are someone who loses 2300 milligrams per liter probably right on, but that's the very, very high end of uh, the spectrum. So it's, it almost seems like it was trying to catch everybody with like the highest recommendation versus just, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think, yeah. I think preloading isn't a bad idea, but I think the numbers are going to be very independent as to mm-hmm. how much. So like Mike, like you probably wouldn't need that much if uh, you noticed your blood pressure going up from doing that. 
versus like, let's say someone had low blood pressure and they're, they're like getting dehydrated easily during these workouts and had a hard time getting enough fluid and electrolytes in during their workouts or coming back like way lighter than they started because of the amount of sweat loss they did. That's the type of person who's probably going to really benefit from something like that. And you are going to notice performance, um, with, uh, you know, proper hydration and electrolyte replenishment, especially for longer periods of time. Most of the research would suggest if you start dipping two to 3% below body weight is when you start seeing like the real noticeable performance, uh, degradation. Um, now that is, uh, in a lab and it's sort of contrived the way they do it from the research I've seen. And you have these like weird situations where, um, trying to remember what year it was. It was, uh, it was at the New York city marathon, I believe. Um, it was when, uh, Geber Lassie won. Oh, no, it was the Dubai marathon. Geber Lassie won it. And I think he ran like just under two hours and five minutes, something like that. He lost 9.8% body weight. And the really interesting thing about it too, was it wasn't like he like, he didn't like struggle into the finish he ran his fastest kilometers at the end of that race so it's like really hard to argue that he was having a performance deficit by going even three four times beyond the spot at which he should have so there's all these weird things that kind of occur when it comes to performance where um you have for one a power weight ratio equation here too where it's like he's i mean he's a tiny guy i think he's probably less than 130 pounds but, you know, he loses almost 10% of his body weight. He's moving less mass at the end too. So I'm sure there was some performance output degradation, but it may have been um, eclipsed by the power weight ratio part of the equation. And then there's also something that I think people don't always consider where as you're, especially someone like him, who's certainly a high carbohydrate athlete, as he's metabolizing carbohydrate and glycogen, his body's releasing that uh, the, the hydrogen that's tied to that and your body doesn't just like waste that it actually recycles it and uses it. So as you metabolize that and, you know, someone who's running a low tour marathon is probably pushing up to like 90 low, low to mid 90% of their V or their, their lactate threshold. So they're certainly burning glycogen at a relatively high rate. And that's going to be, there's going to be a potentially a hydrating effect to that, to some degree, that could potentially comp like could, could complicate that like you know performance equation that they try to work off of. So yeah, I mean, I'm kind of rambling on here about it, but it's I think it's like it's going to be pretty individual. I think at some point, but I think like generally speaking, some sort of like uh, you know prehydration type strategy is going to be in most people's best interest if they're working out like in any like kind of structured meaningful way outside of just kind of like going into a nice climate control gym for 30 minutes, a couple times a week or something like that. Yeah. So Zach, before we started recording, um, I was telling you how about, or how I ran elephant mountain 35 K, um, just mm -hmm. three days ago, whatever in Phoenix. And, um, so it was, it was more of just a training run. Like I didn't like run it hard. It was more of just like run the entire time and just be consistent and practice things. And I definitely, I did this. I did it with around 3000 milligrams of salt. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I, I want to do a sweat test because I am a very heavy sweater, like just like Mike was saying. Like I also live in Tucson, so it's like everybody. I feel like it's a heavy sweater here, but like yeah, <laughs> like all of our group runs, everyone's just like a salt mist at the end. But um, I did that beforehand, and like I felt good the entire day. And I, I don't know if this is because like I just ran like a mellow pace, like I just, I ran like conversational pace the entire time for the twenty two miles, 
but like I, I didn't have any gastric issues from it at all. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, because on my end, <clears throat> I typically do like my, my preload or whatever is usually just a gram. That's how I've been doing it for the past couple of years. And actually, so last week, Zach, Derek brought up this book. Uh, I don't know why, but we brought the book up. And so there was two or three times this past week that I tried front loading a little bit more before going to the gym. And I just took it from one gram to two grams. And like the two or three times I did it, like I had to like jet to the bathroom and do my <laughs> workout. <laughs> so that's definitely not the range for me, which is why I asked about like training your gut earlier. I'm mm-hmm. like, is it just a gut thing that I need to train myself a little bit more and like slowly work up to that range? Or is it just a very high range that he recommended? And for me, I should just keep sticking with a gram kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would probably, I would, I guess my question would be like, what would be the benefit of training your gut to do it if you're not necessarily requiring it? So right. like if, if there was some reason, if, if, if you could find a good reason to think that like, if you could get up to two, you would have this performance advantage, then it's like, yeah, maybe it behooves you to try to do that. But I kind of think like a lot of the gut training stuff, and this goes along with like the carbohydrate side of the equation too, where you have like sort of the reverse process of what we're doing, where it's like, let's see how much carbohydrate we can jam in without creating a digestive issue in order to do that most optimally, we need to be eating tons of carbohydrate during every training session possible and really quote unquote training the gut. Um, even though the research on that isn't very good either. It's like, it's like, it's like, there's, I'm sure there's some, there, there's, there's some application to, there's some degree of it, but whether the margin of diminishing returns is met at like a certain point, especially for races that are really long and low intensity, like what we're doing, it seems like you're really, really going well above and beyond what would be necessary. And you're putting yourself in a position where you're like very metabolically dependent on a, a essentially like a sports product uh, versus someone who's going to be even between like what we're doing and what someone like that would be doing, where they could probably uh, you know, turn to fat a little bit quicker because their bodies aren't just necessarily always going to be get mainlining a exogenous carbohydrate source anytime it starts moving. So Zach, speaking, speaking about longer events and cause you've run <laughs> Western States and done well there. Um, but just last week I interviewed Hayden Hawks about, um, about like nutrition fueling and all these different things. Mm-hmm. And um, so he's definitely not like low carb or keto by any means, like in, he's never going to try to be by at all. But um, he mentioned that he does, or he shoots for around 90 grams of carbs an hour mm-hmm. during a race like Western States. And a lot of that comes through drink mixes and gels. And he, on a lot of his training runs, like his longer runs, he'll uh, play with that, try to get that um, that ratio down properly just to, just so he knows that his stomach can handle that many like carbs. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was also saying too, that like during an event like Western States or even like a, a 50K, probably even more so a 50K, like you're at a pretty high intensity the entire time. There are definitely phases of fat burning, but a lot of like glycogen burning as well. Mm-hmm. So like when you were, or last time you ran Western States, like what was your nutrition strategy going into that? Cause were you mainly just trying to like burn fat the entire time or did you like tap more into glycogen? Yeah. So this is the way I would look at it. Like you're going to have, and there's guys, guys like Hayden too. I know like Killian is, he reported taking, I think a hundred grams of carbohydrate per hour at UTMB this year. And obviously 
it worked well for him. He won it, ran 19 hours, had no digestive issues. The thing that fascinates me about him is he doesn't train his gut. He like maybe hits 25 grams per hour a few times in training from what, I mean, that's what he told me on Twitter anyway. So it's like, like, I find that to be abnormal. I don't know that you could necessarily, most people, I don't, th- I think most people, if they went out and pushed a hundred grams of carbohydrate per hour, they're going to get some sort of gastrointestinal issue if they're doing that for 19 hours uh, on average. I mean, when you just look at the data, um, six out of 10 ultra marathoners on a single day events are going to f- experience some form of gastrointestinal issue of those six out of 10, half of them are going to have some like relatively extreme version of it. So they're recommending 50 to 70 grams per hour for a moderate carbohydrate diet participant in a single day ultra marathon. So pushing up to like 90 and hundred seems like it's just aggressive and it's welcoming that opportunity to get a digestive issue. But there's also some evidence or some research that would suggest that the higher you can go and tolerate the lower your perceived efforts going to become. So my general take on it is just like, Hey, if you can get away with that, like if you can do it and it's not creating any negative repercussions for you and you don't mind the logistical hurdle of taking in that much fuel during the day and consistently doing it, then by all means go for it. For me, I would just be like, I just wouldn't be able to get it in. Like I I've, I've never gotten anywhere close to that. I've tried pushing carbohydrates up high, um, like relatively high, like up to the high end of the recommendations, like 70. And it does not sit well in my stomach. Um, nor does it indicate that it's helping my performance in any way when I'm doing it. So, um, and that, that's just, just an N of one individual experience for myself. So for me, the way I like to look at it is one, I want to know what intensity I'm going to be racing at. So once I know that I can get an idea of where my fat and carbohydrate oxidation is going to be. And then I can start building a fueling strategy off that individual thing. So I went in and got, uh, did a test to see where my carbohydrates and fat ratios were at, at various intensities. And I mean, you get everything from basically stationary all the way up to like an all out effort. So obviously like stationary, someone like myself, who's on a low carbohydrate diet is burning basically hundred percent fat or like the, oh, then you get me go full out sprinting. You know, I'm all the way up just because I'm low carb doesn't mean I'm going to be tapped. I'm still going to tap into muscle glycogen at those higher intensities. Your body is just going to demand it because of the speed at which you need that energy. And I'm up to basically hundred percent carbohydrate, but along that way, along that spectrum, I'm going to have higher fat to carbohydrate ratios. So in the middle between those two extremes, it's usually going to be race intensity, Western States, you know, that's a longer event. So like I'm burning 80 to 90% fat, uh, per, uh, per, like per hour for, for an event like that at that intensity. So what that means for me, um, the one that I did it a little more like controlled was when I ran 11 hours and 19 minutes for hundred miles. Cause that was such a controlled environment that it was a lot easier to kind of map these things. Cause you know, it's on a, it was a 443 meter track. So it's there, you don't even have to weigh in like, Oh, I burned more calories running up to devil's thumb at Western States versus down to the river. Cause it was downhill versus uphill. It was all the same all day long. So at the intensity I did that at, I was going to be burning 800 to a thousand calories per hour, somewhere in that neighborhood. So then I could just kind of run the math of if I'm burning 80 to 90% fat, 10 to 20% carbohydrate, what should I target? So for me, I was like, I know I can get up to 40 grams without any digestive issues because that I've stress test plenty of times. And um, that was going to be enough to to um, replace whatever I would lose with that ratio. And that's just what I targeted. So for me to go up to say 90, 
just didn't make sense because it would be over double what I was actually going to be required to have. And that just to me welcomed potential digestive issues that I didn't want to have to deal with and extra logistical stuff. Cause you know, there's the act of actually consuming it too. Like, even if you don't get the digestive issue, you still have to find a way to get it in and actually do it and stay stick to it versus, um, you know, one of the reasons why I really like some of these controlled loop courses is because you can sort of get into like a bit of a rhythm where you're almost like, you almost go into like more of a, like a kind of like a flow state sort of a experience. And the more you, the, when you do get into those states, not interrupting it is, is convenient. So that means like, if I can avoid breaking that, that kind of that flow by not having to be constantly grabbing for another gel or another energy bite or whatever it happens to be, then it just kind of gives me the more opportunity to be focused on that versus the other thing. So, um, that's the way I kind of look at it. So I would guess Zach, that if there's somebody listening to this, that was a professional in the health world that doesn't agree with how we eat, I'm <laughs> guess I'm guessing that if they heard what you just said, specifically about how you said that you've tried to get up to the 70 gram range before, and it just didn't work for you. I'm guessing that they would try to critique that a little bit and say that the reason you can't do that is because you follow a low carb approach in your day to day. And so I'm wondering, cause you haven't always been low carb. Have you mm-hmm. like, before you like really dove into this, were you able to get your, your grams per hour up into that range before switching to this? Or have you always struggled to get up that high? No, I, I mean, I have for some 50 milers, but like, I, I never, I, I, I would do like, I think the highest I ever got was like, up to 70 for the approximately five and a half hours. And when I finished that, it was like clear, I wasn't going to do that again on that feeling <laughs> strategy. So like, okay. Uh, and and there's, it's a little bit, I mean, there's some variables in there that you would need to adjust for because like, if I'm going twice as far, I'm going to lower intensity too. So maybe I can digest a little more by lowering the intensity and that would stand to reason, but you could also argue that the lower intensities require less of it. So why would I, I mean, the way I end up looking at this a lot of times is I sort of put it in the same camp. If someone wants to push back on, say, me targeting 40 grams, then you also have to push back on people going above 70 grams because the recommendations are 50 to 70. So it's like there's 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 if we're going to be full stop, this is what the recommendations are. Stick with that. Then it's going to be problematic on either end until there's clear reason to believe that we need to change those recommendations. So I think personally, the recommendations for ultra running, and I think the people who wrote the recommendations clearly said this in the report is like, this obviously needs to be looked at more. We just don't have a lot of research on this particular sport and the individual aspects of it. And a lot of this stuff is subject to change potentially. Um, I think ultimately with this sort of stuff, it's like, if you can get yourself into a laboratory and test your, your, where your, your fat oxidation rates are, regardless of whether you're high carb, moderate carb, low carb, no carb those are going to be the numbers that are going to tell you what they are going to be much closer than a population recommendation is going to, is going to do. So um, I actually don't get a lot of pushback with my fueling strategy because when you add context now, like if I went around saying like, Oh, like um, Ilya Kipchoge should be eating the way I do. And he'd run a one fifty five marathon. Then I'd get a ton of pushback, but, <laughs> but it's like, but when, when you actually, when I actually explain like, look, I'm running this race just underneath my aerobic threshold, my fat oxidation tests suggest I'm burning 80, 90% fat. 
I'm targeting these carbohydrates for this reason. I'm just with that amount of context, there's just not a lot of like authentic pushback you can give other than like, maybe you'd be faster if you tried a different way. It's like, maybe, or maybe I'd be slower. It's like, <laughs> it's like, like, right. Like based on, um, based on like my, my results and the lab tests I've done, I'm doing the individualized approach to it. Um, now that doesn't mean everyone should do what I do because the population level numbers are there for a reason. So like, it's not a bad starting point. And that's what I usually tell people too, is like, I started with those because I was on a moderate carbohydrate diet when I started and it wasn't until it proved to not work very well for me, or I didn't feel like it was working very well for me that I made a change. Whereas like, if I'm working with someone and they're, most people are already on a moderate carbohydrate diet. That's just like, on average, most people are going to be eating that way. So if they come and they're like doing something like, let's say they're feeling like Hayden and they're having no digestive issues, no issues outside of it. Everything checks out. It's like, I'm not going to tell them you have to change because I'm doing it differently. I'm going to say, Hey, if that's working for you, let's, let's not mess around with that. Let's work on the stuff that we can actually make some meaningful improvements on. And then if we find out down the road, uh, that, this is no longer working for you. Let's say your last two races, you had massive digestive issues because you were mainlining 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. Maybe then we start looking into what, what are some solutions as to personalize things to make that more manageable for the person. If that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You must be a more likable person than me because I try to have the same approach as you do. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is what I do, but uh, I, I get quite a bit more flack. So yeah, I, guess I mean, I, I just get... like you. <laughs> I get pushback sometimes, but usually like if I like explain it to them the way that, that I just did to you, there's not a lot of additional pushback. I mean, like the pushback I do would get, I would get is like someone could possibly say like, oh, by talking about it, you're suggesting that other people should be doing this. Um, but I'm not. So like, <laughs> it's like, I'm not, so it's like, like, I mean, at that point, I'm just like, like like there's like a certain level of handholding that I just don't think that anyone is really expe- should be expected to do. Um, and yeah. if someone is going to like do such a shallow dive that like you can't actually get into like the detail, like what did it take me like three to four minutes to explain that to you? Like, it's like, you don't have to like, you don't have to like dig in for days and days and days to, to get that answer out of me. So like um, if someone decides to like grab like, a snippet of something that they or read a headline or something like that. And then it comes back because of, because, Oh, cause Zach was talking about low carbohydrate diets. Now this person had a terrible race because they tried a low carbohydrate diet. It's like, <laughs> I, I'm like, I'm, I'm just, I fail to see where that's, that's like my responsibility, I guess. So, cause <laughs> at the end of the day, like people are asking these questions, like, what am I supposed to do? Lie to them about what I'm doing? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you can disagree with what I'm doing. I mean, that's perfectly fine, but like, um, thinking like the, the whole, like, yeah, don't, don't talk about it. If that's what you're asking, I'm not sure, Mike, but, um, yeah, that part, that part of it, I don't understand, but I don't get, I don't get a ton of that, to be honest with you. It's, um, it comes up from time to time, but, uh, not, I wouldn't say it's the norm. Well, no, yeah. I think it's super important that we do talk about this kind of stuff because I, like a lot of the questions that I get is like, you know, as an animal-based athlete, what do you eat while you're training? Because, I've tried nuts. I've tried jerky and I feel like crap. Yeah. I'm just like, well, yeah, I'm animal based, but I actually, I still do gels. I still do carb based drinks. Like, you know, it's just, 
You know, they mm-hmm. see the low carb runner or they see that headline that says Zach Bitter set a world record and he follows an animal based diet. Like those are the things that, <laughs> that right, they read the headline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is yeah. important for us to talk about it like this. I, I do feel. Well, it is. And and here's the other thing. And this is where um, this is where I do confuse people is, you know, I've been doing this for was 2013 for almost 12 years. So 11 and a half years. So about a year and a half to two years in it, I had sort of fine-tuned the macronutrient ratios that I like to target during different phases of training, during races and that sort of stuff. Once I had that dialed down, I've done like a variety of different like inputs to get those macronutrient ratios. And it's been everything from like mostly plant products to mostly animal products to like combinations of them both, like the whole spectrum. So it's like, to some degree, it's like, yeah, you can, like, if someone says, Hey, what are you, what what are you eating? What do you eat in a day? Or what did you eat this week? And I'm at that point in time was hitting those macronutrient targets with mostly animal products. That person walks away thinking, Oh, well, that's just what he always does. Or if they do it in the other way, you know, so it's like, a, you can, you can go a layer deep and still kind of be somewhat confused if you don't like know my entire 11 and a half year process, which I can't appreciate. Like people aren't necessarily always going to have that, but Again, I just like, I think like at that point, like um, I just try to make sure that I'm responsive to people's questions when they ask them as best as I can keep up with it. Yeah, that makes sense. You're always talking about periodization, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Derek, I've been talking a lot. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think a lot of people um, have misconceptions about like if say you're low carb or keto or animal based or something, because so they assume they're like, okay, you're keto. So you're doing like the standard keto protocol of like 20 grams of um, carbohydrates a day or less. Mm-hmm. And like, that's just not really practical. I think for most people say you're racing like a, a 50 K or something like, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. If you're going to be running at a high intensity, you need those carbohydrates, but it's just that you're just not constantly consuming carbs is the main thing. And like, I get a lot of questions from people like, oh, like you, you can't eat that because it has carbohydrates, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, like, here we go again. And um, and they just have these like misconceptions about it. So I think like, I guess kind of what I'm getting at is like talking about it more is better because it opens up questions to people and they feel more, um, open to asking you questions and you can kind of clarify any misconceptions about mm-hmm. um, how you eat and how you train and, and race. Yeah. I, I actually get just as much grief from people who are like on the opposite end of that spectrum where they're just, I'll get people who are telling me like, or basically saying like, why, why I have any carbohydrate at all. And, <laughs> and I, I just like, I, I try to explain to them. I was like, look, I, I actually explain it the exact same way. And I was like, this is, this is, these are what the numbers say. Like, this is literal like tests done on me. And this is the reasoning for it. And they'll be like, oh no, your body will just like produce that endogenously it's like my your body will produce muscle and liver glycogen endogenously but when you're running 100 miles in under 12 hours it's not going to produce it endogenously fast enough just like it's not going to produce it fast enough for kipchoge when he's running 430 pace for for 26 miles and it's 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 a timing thing it's like it's like the the number of steps required to break down a fat convert it to an energy source that your body can actually use for the activity at hand. It just takes a little bit longer. Now it's not bad. It's just means context specific. If you're doing something that's going to drive that energy demand fast enough where you can't afford the amount of time it takes to make those additional steps, then having that faster acting fuel source is going to be a better alternative. 
And then it just becomes a question of how much. And then again, it gets to what we were talking about before, like someone like, like us who has higher fat oxidation rates than the average person is going to need less of it to defend that muscle glycogen. Um, and I mean, like, look, if we find out like at some point, like there's this like crazy thing that we didn't know was going on and it was just all mental and like, you can actually just endogenously produce enough, <laughs> enough but glycogen to to combat that then great cool then i don't have to fuel anymore during races but like i have no reason to believe that's the case so um yeah i mean mike you'd actually probably be a, an interesting one end of one here because you've actually done 100 miles with no calories versus a, a few hundred milers at least with calories and um yeah so you'd probably have like maybe one of the better like just individual like experiences to know like where you're like tolerance to that sort of thing would be yeah so speaking of like fat oxidation tests <clears throat> i did one i think it was shortly after my first zero calorie 100 and i don't know how much like that actual event played into this mm -hmm. but so you know how like as you increase the the pace and the intensity eventually you hit that crossover point from from fat to glycogen mm -hmm. i i tapped out before i ever had a crossover point oh yeah yeah so are you talking like when you crossed over to like burning essentially all carbohydrate versus fat? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah I, I had to tap out before that I ever reached that point. Yeah. Yeah. So what you think of it like on a spectrum, like an intensity spectrum where the slower you go, the higher amount of fat to carbohydrate you're going to burn, the faster you go, the more that's going to skew towards carbohydrate. So someone right. on a moderate high carbohydrate, that's going to skew much faster and they're going to hit hundred percent carbohydrate much earlier um, to the degree where some people are so metabolically inflexible where they're hitting like basically pure muscle glycogen, like at a relatively low intensity, whereas you're on the exact opposite spectrum of that, where you can get up to an all out effort where your body can't physically push any harder and you're still burning at least some fat. Right. Did you, do you know what your, your ranges were when you tapped out? Like from a ratio standpoint of, uh, fats to carbs. I have them down somewhere. I'll have to tell you. I don't remember though. Mm -hmm. Cause they actually see this. I think there's some folks that aren't even on low carbohydrate diets. Who've had that same experience too. I also wonder, um, given the nature of what you do, Mike, like how much or what part of that would be just, um, the fact that your training is going to also promote that. And then it's also going to promote adaptations that make you really good at running slow for a long time versus running fast for a short period of time. So like you're at it, like these adaptations are trade-offs too, from like, if you want to get really good at say the 800 meter, you're going to have to get worse at running 200 milers. Just like if you want to get better at running 200 milers, you're gonna to have to get worse at running 800 meters. So like if you'd spend say like two years, just getting as good as you could at the 800 meter I wonder then if you would be able to push harder to get to the point where now you can push past your physical limitations now, and then that would demand a higher amount of uh, glycogen to support that new potential that you developed through training. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think I'd say that we'll never find the answer out. Yeah. <laughs> You're not planning <laughs> on doing the 100 meter anytime soon. Yeah, I would much <laughs> rather go run 200 miles than 800 meters. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I think um, what you're saying is that goes so important, like the context matters, like whether it's electrolytes or fueling or whatever, like the context is so important because like, you're probably not going to see like, say like a 50 meter sprinter on a ketogenic diet. So it doesn't really correlate there. I don't think. Yeah. Like, although am I wrong there? 
you could make the argument um and i mean i'm not a sprinter or sprinter coach but like you could make an argument there where if it gets short enough and high enough intensity that the 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 high intensity work the training load is so high at that that there's there's such a small amount of volume that you can actually tolerate so even though you are going to be burning a lot higher amounts of carbohydrate during those type of activities the amount of it you can do isn't enough to really dip into your glycogen stores the way you could have at say like a moderate intensity where it's high enough intensity to dip into it at a slower degree but since you can do it for hours you know, like you can kind of really take a big hit to it and then you can do it again sooner. So like, um, you know, Sean Baker is a good example of this actually, because, uh, he does just all explosive stuff. So like his workouts on a daily basis are like maybe 45 minutes in duration, very high intensity, very glycolytic. But since he's got a full 23 hours and 15 minutes before his next one, like, um, and probably eating tons of protein if he's eating like pounds of meat per day so he is going to probably be able to like at least he's he's gonna be he might be he's gonna have an easier time replacing the glycogen that he loses from that 45 minute session than say like someone who's uh, half his size running marathons and doing moderate intensity stuff on a fairly frequent basis or burning like like percentages of their energy from carbohydrate and then dipping into their glycogen stores far enough where they kind of have a like a harder time to dig they have to ha- eat more carbohydrates to speed up that that process to get to that next workout if that makes sense yeah so i personally i had one more question and then i have to i have to jet i have to go pick up my son from school if you guys want to continue on without me you can did you have any more questions derek no i think we should probably wrap it it's it's time okay. so uh, yeah did we set the record for longest step i know you guys are only on episode nine but I need to know if we broke the record. <laughs> we did. <laughs> In a good way though. This is a good conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. So my main question, Zach, and I think this can be a short answer, but so this is more geared towards training, like in training and during races. Mm-hmm. Do you, per, so I guess it's two questions. So do you still use LMNT for your electrolytes while you're racing? And then two, do you see a difference? Like, do you see any pros and cons to supplementing with a powder like LMNT versus a capsule? Yeah, it's a good question. I do. What I'll usually do is first I'll kind of calculate about how much electrolyte I'm going to get from the fuel I take in because that counts. So like with uh, the products I'm going to use during the race, let's say, for example, it ends up being like 300 grams of electrolytes per hour. Um I'm going to subtract that from the total that I'm going to likely need. And then I'm going to add the extra electrolyte above and beyond that. And then, yeah, I'll usually use element T, the powder, but yeah, the capsules I think are a good option too. Cause sometimes, I mean, you just get to a point where like, um, sometimes it just gets, you get sick of like either the same mechanism or the same flavor or whatever it happens to be. And just like swallowing the capsules just a little bit easier because it's a little less intrusive to some degree where like sometimes you just you only feel like water, plain water just feels better um, for whatever reason. And uh, then I think there's some good, good strategy for that. And it's also sometimes a little easier um, from a logistic standpoint, if you have like a scenario where you're between aid stations, you don't want to be like opening up a packet and trying to pour it into a bottle or something like that. You might just take that tab out of a baggie and then pop it and swallow it with a sip of water and not have to take as many steps while you're out there moving. Um, 
Cause like, yeah, running and consuming things and mixing things, is just, uh, the easier you can make it, the better. Yeah. Um, personally I use pills. Uh, mm-hmm. like I, I love Redmond Relight, but I don't use it anywhere in my races. And the reason being is the way I understand it. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you, and again, like a lot of it depends on how much you're actually sweating out, but mm-hmm. you essentially want to aim for like a two to one ratio, right? Where if you take one sip of electrolytes, you should take two sips of water with that to help it not just absorb or just sit in your gut. Is that typically? Yeah, you don't. Yeah, I mean, I guess with the capsules, the the potential problem could be you don't have that pre-mix that's kind of the right concentrate necessarily. So you would, uh, yeah, if you just take like, like you'd have to look and see how much is in the capsule to really kind of figure out how many ounces of water you'd want with it. But if you're like sipping at water pretty like consistently around that, I guess that would probably be enough. Right. But I also mean more specifically, like the reason I stopped drinking Relight is because I felt like I was getting waterlogged because I was oh. drinking, I was drinking a lot of liquids per hour by trying to get the right amount of water and liquid-based electrolyte. So that's why I switched to the capsule because I didn't like drinking okay. that much. Got you. And you didn't try, could, oh, I see. So the concentration was too low so you had to drink more water than you actually needed to get the electrolytes you were looking to get correct oh, okay yeah i guess you could probably yeah you could probably uh adjust a little easier with the tabs like that then that would make sense okay, okay. yeah that's i mean that's how i feel I, I feel better doing it that way personally i know we're all different i think you use relight while you're racing right derek yeah i have i've like i was saying in previous episodes i've been experimenting a lot recently um, but I think the main thing, though, is just making sure you're not going over or under um, your electrolyte balance that you're shooting for. So just for like easiness, like if, say you're shooting for a thousand milligrams, like yeah, you could do relight, but just make sure you're not doing like a thousand milligrams or whatever, a thousand milligrams of sodium and like two S caps or something, and then going way over um, your actual goal for electrolyte intake. Because once you do that, you're going to have issues. And then you could dilute it, I guess, by just sipping water after that. But um, I think just kind of having a strategy in place before like pre-race and knowing that, okay, like I'm going to drink water or whatever. And if I do drink water, I should take a salt cap and then not drink Relight for 15, 20 minutes or something or vice versa or whatever. And just kind of think about it and then make sure your ratios are kind of there. Um, that's how I look at it anyways. Like I, when I raced Saturday, I did that. And like I drank Tailwind almost the entire time. But then towards the end, um. I just had water and some like S caps or something. And that's what I used for the last few miles. And I felt fine. Um, but if I, I'm assuming if I would have taken like all like say four S caps and a whole bottle of tail in those last three miles, that'd have been way too much sodium for me. <laughs> I've been like probably two grams or something. <laughs> yeah. You're bringing like up. Tel- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the last thing I'll say and I'll be done. But speaking of okay. tailwind, I think it is important for those who are listening to realize that like most carb based drinks, at least that I know of, you know, you have tailwind, you have gnarly nutrition, like a lot of those has anywhere from, or have anywhere from three to 600 milligrams of sodium mm-hmm. per serving. Yep. So definitely take that into account. Cause yeah, like what Derek just said, if you're pounding tailwind thinking that you're mostly getting carbs and calories and not taking into account of the sodium, and then you pop a few S caps, you're going to be way over. So just make sure you're looking at, you know, as both of you said, Zach said it earlier too, look at everything you're taking and make sure that you're taking into account all these so that you're getting from outside of just basic electrolyte sources. Exactly. Perfect. 
Cool. I think it's a good way to wrap it up then. <laughs> awesome, guys. Well, thanks a bunch for inviting me on. Yeah, dude. Thanks yeah, for coming thank on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, we do. And for those who are listening, I'm sure most of them are already following you, Zach, but what's your Instagram handle? Um, just at Zach Bitter, Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. Okay. And you are a coach. Are you taking on any athletes right now? Yeah, I have a couple spots left. Um, yeah, my website, ZachBitter.com, just has all the details for like coaching, podcast, social media, all that stuff. Okay, cool. We'll put that in the show notes. And uh, on that note, thanks again for coming, Zach, and we'll see everybody else next week. Yeah, take care, guys. See you later.